Thanks for joining Graham Pelton's Make Mission podcast, where we bring together philanthropy scholars and fundraising practitioners to better understand the world of nonprofit development. What is being studied? What trends affect donor decisions? We'll bridge the gap between theory and practice to understand the future of philanthropy and how to make mission. I'm your host, Anna Shalia. Today, we're breaking down the who, what, where, and especially when of soliciting donor-advised funds. Don't worry, it's more fun than it sounds. Hello, philanthropy academics, practitioners, and pracademics. Welcome to another episode of Make Mission. Now, when I say donor-advised funds, what is your first reaction? Do you have flashbacks of mandatory trainings? Do you envision checks with no recognizable donor information? Do you conjure up ways to secretly document multi-year restricted pledges? Me too. The explosive growth of donor-advised funds is showing no signs of slowing down anytime soon. According to a report from the National Philanthropic Trust, analyzing data from 2020, DAFs grew for the 11th consecutive year across all key metrics. Grants to qualified nonprofits from DAFs totaled an estimated $34.6 billion in 2020, a 27% jump and the largest increase in a decade. Our scholar today is Dr. Dan Heist. Dan is an assistant professor of public administration and nonprofit management at the Romney Institute of Public Service and Ethics at Brigham Young University. Dr. Heist earned a BA from Pennsylvania State University, a master's degree in philanthropic studies from the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University, and a PhD in social welfare from the University of Pennsylvania. His research focuses on charitable giving, philanthropy, and volunteering. His nine years of professional experience fundraising informs his research and teaching. Dr. Heist is a leading expert on donor-advised fund research and co-founder of the Donor-Advised Fund Research Collaborative. Our practitioner is Heather Engel. Heather is an Associate Vice President for Gift Planning at the University of Virginia. Prior to UVA, Heather spent 15 years at the Rochester Institute of Technology in various advancement leadership roles, most recently in the role of AVP for University Development and Engagement. Prior to her move to higher ed, Heather spent nearly 13 years practicing law in Illinois, Massachusetts, and California. She specialized in estate planning for high net worth individuals. Heather holds a Juris Doctorate from the John Marshall Law School in Chicago and a Bachelor of Arts degree from DePaul University. Dan and Heather, thank you so much for joining Make Mission. Dan, let's start with you. I would love for you just to jump on in with a recent report that you released from the DAF Research Collaborative. Can you tell us more about this uh, Patterns and Trends report? Sure. Uh, But before I do, Anna, maybe I'll just share a quick anecdote of how I first learned about donor advice funds. It was probably about a decade ago that uh, I was working as a major gifts officer and uh, was working with a a couple who were approaching retirement and had been involved in real estate development in Southern California. And as we all know, real estate development in Southern California is an extremely uh, lucrative uh, thing to be in. Uh, And they had highly appreciated assets. Well, I was talking with this couple about maybe a $25,000 scholarship to one of the universities that I represented. And they were wrestling about where to get that $25,000. And they were talking 
back and forth a little bit about, well, what about this property or that property? Should we try and maybe sell one of these uh, properties? And I had been trained on donor advice funds and I just didn't even really know fully, you know, what I was talking about. But I said, I, I think you can use a, a donor advice fund to, to, to give a piece of property and then, you know, give out of it. Well, you know, long story short, uh, instead of working on a $25,000 gift, I ended up working with that family on a multi-million dollar philanthropic plan. Not all of that money ended up at the, the institutions that I represented, but as a major gifts officer, it helped me understand that to be conversant, to understand the way the DAS work, allowed me to connect with this family in a way that was much more meaningful than just one major gift. So I'll start with that. Um, so I definitely feel the kind of the, the challenge, but also the opportunity that a lot of major gifts officers face when working with donors who use a donor advice fund. Um, but fast forward eight to 10 years, and we've been researching donor advice funds for a long time now. We just recently re released a report uh, in March that included over 13,000 donor advice fund accounts. And we have their account level data, which means we can see money coming in, money going out, where the money is going, what it's being used for, um, what kind of assets they're, they're donating. So we've got really, really rich data that we've collected from over 20 organizations all around the country. And what we're seeing from the data that we've collected is that DAFs are extremely versatile in facilitating a wide range of charitable giving activity. And uh, what I mean by that, and we can hop into the details, but there's small DAFs and huge DAFs and medium-sized DAFs. There's DAFs that are really fast and they move money out really quickly. There's DAFs that hold on to money over a long period of time. There's people that involve family in DAFs. There's folks that use the DAF and they're the only advisor. There's, um, you know, endowed DAFs and spendable DAFs. There's, you know, donor advice funds that have a very rigid pattern of grant making. And there's donor advice funds that respond widely to, to, to circumstances. And so um, when we talk about donor advice funds, it's, I think the first thing that's important to understand is we're not just talking about one prototype of charitable giving. We're talking about a wide range of very different kinds of giving out of this one particular vehicle. Was there anything that really stood out to you on this most recent study, especially coming out of out of the pandemic? Was there any data point that surprised you? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, there were a few things. Uh, I think I think the, there's a lot of attention on large DAFs, multi-million dollar donor advice funds. And one of the things that we saw was that, yes, these larger accounts seem to have kind of a slower payout rate, if you will, lower payout rate, kind of a slower approach, a longer term approach. Um, and, and many of these large accounts are are designated as endowed donor advice funds. And I think that's one area that a lot of people don't fully understand or, or, or even know that that's a possibility. And so some community foundations or or, or, or Jewish federations, you know, will have accounts that you set up like an endowment, and so it operates very much like an endowment. And and so I think I think one of the things that we're realizing is how important that particular type of DAF is in in, in some of the patterns that we're seeing. Um, but even those those larger accounts were, so to speak, on the slower end of moving money out. Um, in 2020, when we looked at their activity. It was those accounts that really were, were were unloading a lot more grants, and so we saw a much more responsiveness. We saw what we call slack; they had more flexibility to give away more when there was a crisis. And so, you know, I, I think there's kind of a two sides to that coin. 
And so that I think was was one of the more uh, insightful findings from the study. That's great, Heather. Tell us more about your your experience and your history with planned gift fundraising, and also what are you experiencing now with your DAF donors? Well, and so it's interesting, and what we're experiencing is similar to what Dan was just talking about, in that DAF donors and DAFs are as varied as any other group of donors. And when you talk about a DAF donor, I really think about it from two different perspectives. One is our group of donors who are looking at creating a DAF and they're using the DAF as a tool and they're putting money into a DAF, usually solving for some kind of a problem or issue or certain type of planning that they're trying to do. Then we have the DAF donors who are taking the money out of the DAF and making gifts through their DAF. And from a fundraising perspective, I see these donors really as different kinds of people when I'm working with them. When I'm working with somebody who's looking at setting up a DAF, we're looking at the DAF the same way we would look at a charitable remainder trust or a charitable lead trust or a pooled income fund. What is the donor trying to accomplish and what is the best tool to use to accomplish it? And so then we're looking at all different kinds of DAFs. Um, when we're looking at donors who are making gifts out of a DAF, that really isn't different than soliciting your everyday major gift, principal gift, or annual fund donor. It's just that they are they already have the assets parked in the DAF, and they're choosing that as their vehicle to give really no differently than they would choose a checking account or appreciated securities or whatever. So we have to kind of differentiate the donors in those two ways. I will also say, um, from my experience with DAFs, I've worked at two institutions where we have set up DAFs and I see senior administrators very, very anxious to set up DAFs because they see it as a huge market and they think it will bring in lots of revenue. And I would caution everyone to be very thoughtful before you set up a DAF and really understand why you're doing it and what problems you're trying to solve for. At one institution where I was, we set up a DAF and we ended up winding that DAF down. It was not a success. We really didn't need it and we shouldn't have gone there. Um, we have also set up a DAF here at UVA. It's a very limited, restrictive DAF because we knew exactly what problems we were solving for. And we went live with that last July. And I think that DAF will be very successful. But again, it, it's it was set up for a very specific reason and it's a very specific tool. If I'm looking at a donor who wants to support numerous charities through a DAF, the UVA DAF is not for them. Um, so, so it's a tool and it's a tool that we use to accomplish what the donor wants to do. Heather, would you say that there is an approach that you take when you are working with a donor who uses their DAF to support 20 organizations in town, his alma mater, her alma mater, you know, it, it, that they, they're they really using it as their charity ATM. When you're walking into those conversations, how are you, what's your mindset as fundraiser? Um, well, first of all, I know that they have a DAF, so they probably have charitable dollars set aside that are spendable opposed to if I'm just going to meet with the donor and I don't really know what their income looks like, what their investments look like. I don't know if they have a DAF. I don't know if they have charitable money set aside. If they have a DAF, I know they do. So, you know, even I think about 
early on in the pandemic when the markets were all over the place and people were panicking and major gifts really slowed down, one of the first things we did was pull lists of our DAP donors because we knew they had charitable funds on the sidelines. And we started culling those lists very carefully and looking for patterns and looking at what they supported because those were some of the people we wanted to go talk to right away. They were probably a little bit less concerned about some of the market fluctuations and still willing to be philanthropic as long as we can find um, areas that align with what they want to accomplish. You know, it's interesting you say that, Heather, because um, we looked at uh, grant making from donor bias funds between 2017 and 2019. It's a three year, we had a three year baseline. And then we looked at 2020 and uh, we saw very, you know, we saw kind of similar patterns throughout 2020 uh, until you hit April. And then we see this big bump in pandemic response giving. What we expected to find was a dip towards the end. That the, the folks who had kind of responded to the pandemic uh, said, okay, I kind of did my DAF giving for the year. But the, the really surprising thing is we actually saw an, another bump at year end. And so there's indication that folks were double dipping, so to speak, out of their DAFs. And so I think that's a really wise strategy that you you knew what donors had the DAFs and you knew that, that, that those donors had that kind of both resilience to the market, but also that 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 slack or that flexibility to to make extra gifts. I think that's an important lesson too when we think about potential, unfortunately, upcoming crises. That this was this was once once in a lifetime event that happened, and a lot of development shops responded very differently. Some put their foot on the gas, others held back. But to hear that your team, Heather, made that move right off the bat, identified the people who had already made a commitment to your organization and gave them that opportunity, uh, we, we might be in a position in a few years, five years, 10 years, when the next crisis comes up or the next campus-wide event happens to remember, no, we have this, we have this list. We have this donor pool that has set aside these funds. They care about us. They might invest in us. Another important point, I think, is when we're working with our data people, and it's come up a few times in my career where people say, do we really need to code the DAF gifts? Anna, early on, you mentioned you get this check and, you know, what donor does it go with and matching them up? And it can be a little bit more work from a gift processing standpoint, but it shows the importance of having that good information in your database, because if you can't get it out later, you can't use it. I want to second that, Heather. I, you know, I, I think one of the challenges that the, the entire nonprofit sector faces is a learning curve around DAFs, right? And, and and we're still trying to understand how do we work with DAF donors, how do we keep track of DAF gifts. So there's this learning curve that we're all kind of going through, and and data collection is is just at the heart of that, right? We need to, you know, our gift entry teams need to understand when that check comes in from the DAF sponsor, what that means. And so I, I really appreciate that insight that, that you are doing that training, that you are emphasizing the importance of collecting that data because we, we need to be learning as we go. I think sometimes too, there feels like if you're a gift officer, it feels like there's so many steps in between when the donor has made the decision to when you find out they've made the gift. But to the donor, they don't think that way. They cared about your organization and they made they made the gift. And they don't want a special acknowledgement. They want the acknowledgement that they would have received if it were cash or who was a check. And so there's this, almost this disconnect when it comes down to the paperwork of 
for the donors on the donor side. So when we think more about these donors, uh, remembering, Dan, your, your opening remarks that we cannot put all DAF donors in the same category, that they use, they use this fund for different venues or different means, or as Heather said, to solve certain problems. But Dan, you've done some research on the timing of mm -hmm. DAF donors, and I'd love to hear more about that and um, also what that might mean for us fundraisers. Sure. Uh, so this particular research, we interviewed 50 DAF donors all across the country. Uh, we partnered with uh, Stanford University and, and we, we got a really great sample, you know, smaller DAF users, large high net worth DAF users. Uh, and we just asked them, tell us about how you're using it. Tell us about when you decide to give. Tell us about your experience in, in, in making grants. For timing, we began to notice patterns as people talked about their DAFs. And there were three basic patterns. The first pattern was, we, and this comes from uh, a community foundation director uh, in the Midwest. He said, as I explained this pattern, he said, oh yeah, that's our, that's our bathtub donors. <laughs> they filled up, they drain it. They filled up, they drain it. And this pattern is, is that really quick cyclical pattern where uh, they move you know, maybe appreciate securities over at year end into the DAF. They already have an idea of how much they're going to be giving the next year. And then they give it out and then they fill it up and then they give it out. And then they fill right. And it's this kind of almost annual cycle. And so we call those tub donors. They use the DAF. Now tub doesn't necessarily mean small. Uh, we interviewed one donor who moved $5 million in and $5 million out every year. And so that was a big tub, but it was still that tub action, right? That, that kind of cycle. The next group of donors, we call them our tank donors. They, these are the folks that who have a liquidity event or a wealth event. Uh, they move a big chunk in, and then they kind of take a little bit more time on how to use the resources in the DAP. It might be three to five years. It might be uh, maybe eight to ten years. But it's, it's it's kind of this idea that there's this kind of larger set of resources set aside, and that they'll spend it down over time. The and, and there's a lot of variation in that group. The last kind of overall big pattern that we saw, we call tower donors. And these are donors that are really establishing a DAF for long-term, sustainable, sustained philanthropic activity. So they, they set up, and this is where, you know, an endowed DAF might set, they, they, again, they might move in a, over, over lump sum, or they might build it up over time, but their end goal is to sustain uh, kind of long-term philanthropy, and they're keeping an eye on their balance. They're not going below a certain balance. They're using a certain percentage every year. And so it's it, it, three kind of basically different models. And so we, we think that as fundraisers begin to understand how, you know, like Heather said, what what purpose, what what, what problem is, is the donor using the DAF for? And they begin to understand some of these patterns that they'll be able to craft solicitations depending on what what type of of pattern that they're seeing. Dan, I think it's really interesting for me to hear you break it up into those three groups because prior to this, I was making a list of why I see people setting up DAFs. And the, what I came up with was to really use it as a growth vehicle. So if let's say our endowed professorship is at 3 million, if they give us a million dollars and we park it in an endowment and wait years before we spend it, they still only have a million dollars worth of credit and they never can set up that endowed professorship. But you can put that money in a DAF, let it grow. Um, so I think that's probably your tank person. Um, 
we see people who use it as a vehicle to bring family together the same way you would use a private foundation. So there's your tower person. Um, yep. I see it for somebody who has an illiquid business interest that might be throwing off unrelated business taxable income. So we can't take that asset in and hold it. They might park it in a DAP fund. And then that's immediate, whenever there's the liquidity event and that asset is sold, that is immediate and immediately goes out. So although it's not in and out, in and out like tub, it's kind of, it's more similar, I yeah. think, to the tub. Just a, um, kind of a quick holding people, yeah. Right. We see the people who do bunching. Um, and yep, then we absolutely. see the people who are really, they're having an illiquidity event and they just want the tax deduction now and they're going to pay it out every year. So again, that's that's kind of your tank donor. But every every scenario I can think of where somebody's setting <laughs> up a DAP fits in your model very nicely. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And it's kind of a broad kind of prototype. And we use the water analogy, you know, the bathtub and the water tank and the water towers. But, you know, the... We also find some hybrid models, right? There, there's kind of some folks will have maybe a, a tower mentality where, okay, I'm, I'm preserving a group of it, but they also might get in and out every year on top of that. So uh, it, it's really, you know, it, the idea is just to kind of start, you know, opening up this black box and seeing the different ways that these that, that donors are using the DAFs. Heather, can you share with me how you've then worked with institutional timeline priorities? and your DAF donors timing. So you're in campaign or you have initiative or it's whenever there's a time-driven project happening on campus, how do you manage or reconcile the institution's time and the donor's time? I was, I think that's hard with all planned gifts. Um, and it's hard, most of our institutional priorities need large gifts. So all of those gifts are almost always going to happen on the donor's timeline, or else you're going to end up getting a much smaller gift. And again, the DAP is the vehicle you may or may not choose to use to facilitate the gift, but I don't see that we can ever or ever should push our donors to do something quicker on our timeline. And the few times where I have had institutional pressure to do that and have actually done it, we've ended up getting a much smaller gift than we would have if we were just patient. You know, if, if you can understand kind of the way that the donor is using the DAV, you can start to understand their idea of timing. And if you know that they're kind of holding on to this resource for long term, then you craft your solicitation around, would you consider our institution as part of the the ultimate kind of, um, I want to say like remainder beneficiary. It's not exactly a remainder, but that idea, right? That, 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 would you consider like a bequest out of your DAF? when you know when you pass on or before you passed on to successor advisors. I want just one more thing too about timing of 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 gifts um, and how what it means for the institution. We looked at the money coming in and money going out month to month through DAFs. And the money coming into DAFs is very similar to what you would expect at any other charitable institution. At the year end at fourth quarter was most of the giving uh, coming into the DAFs, uh, kind of donors responding to the calendar year, thinking about tax uh, implications. But the money coming out of the DAFs was surprisingly flat. So in the fourth quarter, you know, we only saw about, I think it was about 35%-ish of, of, of the total money coming out of DAFs. The number of grants was higher. So people were making kind of last minute year-end 
gifts, but, but the total amount of dollars coming out was not particularly higher in the fourth quarter, slightly, but not, but not what you would expect. And so what we see then is that, you know, if you know a donor has a donor advice fund, they're not as beholden to the calendar year. And so you can, you don't have to think just about year end giving with, with them. Does that, yeah. how does that ring with you, Heather? As I say, that is really interesting to me to hear that. Um, and I wonder if the reason the number of gifts coming out in the fourth quarter are a little bit higher, although dollars aren't higher, is because so many organizations are doing year-end solicitations. So if the donors are getting more solicitations, they're thinking, oh, yes, I haven't given to this journey this year. I will send them something small. Um, yeah. But I think it's also really interesting, you know, uh, there are a lot of us out there that watch our quarters almost the same way salespeople watch their quarters and start to worry if a quarter's really down. And that's another time when it might be good to think about, okay, who are our DAF donors? If we need to front load some things into, say, May and June that normally would have come in in November, December, it might be our DAF donors that we can go to and ask to kind of accelerate some of those gifts because they're not getting their charitable deduction in the calendar year. The year end doesn't matter as much to them and they might be willing to do that. It's, it's funny you say that because after December, the next highest month is June. So <laughs> yeah, there's, there's definitely this bump in June where uh, you know, I don't know if it's a fiscal year kind of thing, but yeah, we, it's a great point. I call that the June hustle for fundraisers. <laughs> it is. For, first, first two weeks of June, you're making some phone calls. And Anna, I also wanted to go back to what you were talking about, about thanking our DAF donors and really recognizing them. And again, it plays into what Dan was saying here at UVA when we were setting up our DAF, you know, we will see the dollars come into the DAF and they may or may not sit there for a while. And then they're going to go out and they're going to go to another part of the university or we have 19 separate fundraising foundations across grounds. It might go to a different fundraising foundation. So there was a lot of conversation about thanking the donors and where and how, when do we thank the donors. And obviously we're only gonna count the gift once. So we had to talk about counting and then crediting, but thanking. And we decided we're gonna thank the donors every step of the way. So we thank the donor when the DAF is funded. We thank the donor when the money goes out and goes someplace else across grounds. And that one can be a little bit more specific because we know exactly how the dollars are gonna be used. But, you know, it's it's very similar to every other part of fundraising. Just thank your donors over and over and over. One of the challenges that gift officers and, and development staff face is when you do get those checks that don't have a name on them. And so I think it's important just to take a minute and, and talk about that as well. There are some organizations that their default uh, selection is to not have your name on it. Most of them, the default is to have your name on the check, uh, the, the name of the donor on the check. Um, and, but I think the more important instance is when the donor chooses to be anonymous, uh, which does happen more frequently with DAFs, although not as frequently as you might expect. You know, best estimates are around 4% of, of all grants going out are decidedly anonymous. Um, and, and we interviewed, as we interviewed donors, we asked them about that. You know, when do you decide to be anonymous? When do you not? And, and typically uh, there were a few, a few different responses, but typically it was when the donor was giving to a cause that was kind of new to them. They didn't really see themselves supporting it again. They were they were responding to maybe uh, um, some social pressure from a friend uh, or something like that. And they weren't really trying to engage with a long, 
a lot had a, a relationship with that organization. They didn't want to be solicited again. And, or they also, frankly, just didn't want their name on a, an annual report and, and they didn't want their name out there in the kind of public space. And so, um, you know, I, I think there's not much you can do, and I know that's frustrating, but I think as you, as you talk with your donors, uh, one thing you can do is you can say, um, we'd like to know if you give to us from your DAF, and if you choose to remain anonymous outside of the organization, we're happy to honor that. And so sometimes the question around anonymity can be solved by the organization themselves. You know, we won't put you on our annual report. We won't make this publicize this. And so even though it, it can be frustrating, there are, are things that I think you can do to try and help the donors understand. Again, it's a learning curve on the donor side as well, that you don't have to be anonymous to us, but we can keep your gift anonymous. I'd be curious to hear from from both of you, your experience with uh, a certain particular donor story, if you want to create a fun alias or, uh, or or share an experience you've had working with a DAF donor, maybe how their DAF was a way in which allowed them to accomplish a goal or uh, was a way for them to really support the organization in a surprising or different way. A lot of our donors who are setting up DAFs here at UVA are doing it because they want to support many areas across grounds, and here we call it campus grounds. Um, and again, because we have all of these separate 501c3 organizations, foundations, if a gift just comes in centrally to the university, it then becomes state funds. So it's very hard for us to then turn that money over to a separate 501c3 organization. And so it's easier for us to set up a DAP and run all of those gifts to the, through the DAP. But the process of doing that is always, I think, very fulfilling as a fundraiser because you're hearing about every place on grounds that has touched somebody's life in some way, shape, or form. And many of these donors will give to anywhere between, say, 9 and 13 different places across grounds. And then I find that the more they give and the more they get involved, the more their interests tend to get even more far-flung, opposed to just narrowing in on one thing. And they might pick one or two things that are their biggest passions and really support, but they start giving to other areas and it just grows and grows and grows. And I think that's a really neat part of the working with the DAF donors, just getting them engaged, getting them involved, finding out what they care about. I think the same thing is probably true with the community foundations. You know, the people who are setting up these DAFs at their community foundation are very, very passionate about their community and helping their community and understanding how their philanthropy can move the entire community forward. Well, and I'll just add to that, Heather, too. I've, we've worked a lot with community foundations as we've collected data and tried to understand um, their particular donors. And, and community foundations, I think, make a real effort to facilitate um, relationships uh, that donors may not naturally have. And, and so as we think about 2020 and the call for more racial justice and, and, and causes that, that donors may not have been naturally connected to, uh, community foundations were able to, to help try to make bridges and, and, and serve their donors in that way in, in putting forward recommendations and, and under, helping donors understand the landscape in their local community and where they can make a difference. And so I really appreciate that function that donor advice fund sponsors can play. And I, th I, I think 
for me, I think the trend is more of that. You know, even some of the larger uh, national sponsors, you know, commercially uh, uh, affiliated sponsors, uh, you know, with, with the new war in Ukraine, you know, we're seeing emails come through, you know, uh, from. I'll just full disclosure. I'll just let you know that I have several DAFs that I've opened at different places just to see how they work. So I'll open like a small, a lower, you know, a low level DAF somewhere just to get their mail and and just to like use their system. So uh, you know, this that's just the geek in me trying to figure out the different DAFs. So I get this mail from different organizations, and they're saying things like, "Here's some organizations that you can support the war in Ukraine, right?" And so um, I'm starting to see DAF. That sponsor starting to take more of that role. Um, one anecdote that I think is also interesting to see another side of donor advice funds. We found that about about 13, 12 to 13% of donor advice fund accounts had three or more advisors. And so that's for us an indication that there is some use of the DAF for family involvement. And so th- those could be you know, non-family members, but the the majority of those are probably family members. I interviewed uh, one gentleman who had set up a DAF when he sold uh, part of a business that he had been involved in. He was an accountant, so he kind of naturally got the tax benefit of the DAF. and, And he had nine children. And he set up his DAF in a way that it was like a little mini family foundation and each of the nine children and their families could make choices about a certain percentage of the grant making every year. And then when he and his wife die, they'll each have, have like kind of one ninth of, of the, the death and then a, a tenth of it will go to his religious organization. And, and so for me, I think another aspect of, as we think about, uh, the way that donors use DAF is to also think about next generation and the way that some people will use the DAF to engage next generation. And we know how important it is for institutions to try to facilitate, you know, multi-generational involvement in, in the organization. So. And Anna, when you ask about stories, you know, the one thing um, I would say, and particularly for smaller not-for-profits is when someone comes to you with an asset that's going to be hard for you to take and hold, think about a DAF. And there are a number of DAFs out there. Um, and if someone's looking for one, I'm more than happy to have them reach out. Um, where you can they can they can handle some of the more difficult assets. And again, I'm thinking about you know unrelated business income tax issues. Um, lack of marketability, liquidity issues, or just an asset where your institution doesn't want to be in the chain of title. And opposed to say no, you know, you can use a DAF to help you figure out how to get to a yes on that gift. From a, from the empirical standpoint, uh, I just second what Heather is saying. Um, we, we tracked money coming into DAFs. We um, tracked whether it was coming from kind of cash, securities, or other were kind of those hard to hard to kind of quantify, you know, complex assets. And and so we definitely see, um, you know, a, a substantial portion of, of other assets coming in. So DAS can definitely be useful to that. I'll, I'll add on, on the money going out too. What, what's interesting is that um, donor advice funds, most of the grants are actually unrestricted. And so uh, a little bit less than half of the dollars are unrestricted, which Makes sense because the bigger gifts tend to be more restricted. But um, we also see not only are people using uh, different types of assets to fund their DAF, but they're also, you know, there's a wide range of the types of grants that they're making. And so donor advice fund sponsors can facilitate a restricted gift, but 
most of the grants actually don't have any restrictions. They're kind of uh, general operating or where needed is greatest. So I'd love to hear from both of you where you think this is going. What are we going to be saying about DAFs in, in five years, in 10 years? Um, Dan, of course, I want your experience on the research side. Um, Heather, I'd love to hear, too, what you think about from the fundraising side. What if, what if fundraisers need to be considering uh, five and 10 years out with this giving vehicle? Well, first, tell me what Congress is going to do, and then I'll answer your question. <laughs> I talked to them next week. They're on the podcast next week. All of Congress. Um, you know, assu assuming that there isn't legislation which drastically changes how DAFs can operate today, I think we'll continue to see great growth and that they're going to be a wonderful tool. You know, far be it from me to predict what is going to happen with legislation, but I think sooner or later down the road, there is going to be some rating in of DAFs and it might be sooner and not later. And that, depending on what that looks like, that could have a big impact on DAFs. You know, some of what I've been looking at is would basically curtail some of the tower DAFs that Dan talked about. Um, so, so that would be a hit. But most of the DAFs that I tend to work with tend to either be more of the tub or the tank style DAFs. And um, I, I think there's still a, a use for those, again, depending on what legislation looks like. We, we, we did do some calculations using the data we just collected to try and understand who would be affected by a 15-year uh, kind of time frame for spending down the DAF. Uh, what we did is we 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 tracked all the donor advised funds that in our sample that opened in 2017. And we just tried to follow how quickly did they spend down that initial deposit in that opening year. And just to try and gauge how quickly are people really using the money that they put into DAFs. Um, what's interesting to note uh, up front is that about 60% of the initial contribution of, of the accounts that made that contribution did, didn't spend anything in that first year. So only about 40% opened the DAF, put money in, and then made a grant. So most of them were not spending. And we, we think that a lot of that is because they're being opened towards year end and, and the donors just haven't had a chance to make a grant. But then within two to three to four years, uh, most of the DAFs actually had spent down that additional deposits. So there's a, for most staffs, there's a very quick window. As we as we use our four year of years of data to try and project what would happen, we, we estimated that at least 80% of donor advised fund accounts will spend down their initial uh, their initial contribution within 15 years. And so there's about 20% of DAF accounts that would be directly affected by something like an ASAC. And that's the best guess. It's possible that if we had more data, we would see DAF spending kind of down in year eight or 10 or, or whatever. But just from our four-year window, you know, at, at least 80% will be spending down within 15 years. What we're worried about, at least from a behavioral economics standpoint, is that some sort of regulation around when you have to spend your money uh, would create what we call an anchor point. And, and we do this all the time. We anchor our behavior around what we think is the right thing to do or what the, the, the speed limit is or what uh, most people are, are investing or, or what, what. And so, so a 15-year window could signal to donors that would typically use the money within three or four or five years, oh, you know, actually, I've got 15 years to do it. And so what we're worried about is as, as well-intended 
as a 15-year payout is that it could kind of send the wrong signal, so to speak, to donors that, that the vast majority of donors that are really spending it much more quickly. Um, on the other side of that is, you know, those 20% of DAF accounts uh, that that are have this kind of longer term uh, philanthropic strategies, those tower donors that we talked about, you know, for us, it's, you know, what is the normative kind of argument that why that type of philanthropy is is worse than than any other type of philanthropy? And, and, and what is the value to the recipients that that money is kind of growing and then they will get the bequest uh, at the end of the life of the donor or, or at the end of the term of the DAF? And so um, we think there's a lot more discussion to be had in the policy space now that we have a little bit more better data to, to help inform that discussion. And so we hope that this 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 research that we're doing and more research that is to come will will just help inform that those policy discussions. Dan, can I ask you a multi-part question? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so we all speculated in 2017 that the Tax Cut and Jobs Act would lead to more DAFs because of the increase of the standard deduction and fewer people would be itemizing. I believe that's happened, but that's the first part of my question. Can you confirm that that's happened? And then what do you think will happen if that, in fact, sunsets in 2025? So the first part of the question is, yes, we we did see a spike in, in contributions coming into DAS and in uh, accounts opening. So there is some indication that the Tax Cut and Jobs Act did kind of um, catalyze uh, donors that we're maybe already planning on it or did it, we're learning about it. So so yes, we do say that. And then the second part of your question was uh, kind of what would be the, the consequence you think of, of a sunset, a 15 year sunset? Uh, you know, it, it's really hard to say. We think that, you know, there's really three options, right? You want to give to charity anyway. And so you, you know, uh, maybe make a, a, a large gift to charity. If you're planning to use it quickly, you could still use the DAF. If you're planning to to a more long-term philanthropy, you might look more at trusts or private foundations if you're in that range where it makes sense to you. Um, and so, you know, there's pros and cons to using the DAF over a trust or a private foundation. Um, but we, we would see donors who had that kind of longer range uh, strategy, you know, using some other vehicle. Um, we also think that you know there could be some more just outright giving to uh, uh, charities instead of folks using the DAF. Um, but again, the charities that are likely to handle those larger gifts are well established. You know that's bad news for the small nonprofit, right? So um, and so the DAFs really do play this uh, kind of facilitation role of, of receiving large gifts and then allowing donors to break it off. And so you know we could see donors you know still giving directly. Uh, but just to larger institutions that are more well-equipped to handle that. Um, so good news for UVA. <laughs> but uh, but then, and then, you know, obviously there would be some donors that would decide not to use that particular asset for charitable giving. And so, you know, we'd see money walking away from the charitable sector, so to speak. Right. It's all speculation though, you know. We, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we hope we hope that the, the, that the more research will just help you know, the entire sector, including policymakers to think, wow, these are really versatile gifts that are facilitating many types of philanthropic activity. And one particular regulation could hinder one particular type of philanthropic activity and, and could indirectly 
uh, affect other types of philanthropic activity that were not intended to be regulated. So what are your parting words? What are What is your last bit of advice that you would have for uh, for your fundraiser, for the fundraiser who's out there who has a working a portfolio and they have a handful of DAF donors? What is your advice to them for fundraising from this giving vehicle? For an individual fundraiser, I would treat them pretty much like every other donor, but remember that they have those philanthropic dollars on the sidelines, so don't ever overlook them. For a program overall, whenever um, you're, you're a little worried or really need to find some dollars, that is a great well to go to. And if your administration is pushing you to set up your own DAF program, think long and hard before you do it. I don't think I could say anything better than what Heather just said. <laughs> okay. oh, maybe I'll just reiterate. Um, yeah, for the individual funder, fundraiser, if you learn that one of your donors or donor prospects has a donor advice fund, uh, I'm a huge fan of Jerry Panis. You know, uh, I would probe, um, ask questions. When did you set up the DAF? What kind of assets are you moving into the DAF? How often do you use the DAF? What kinds of organizations are you... And as you begin to probe and understand their philanthropic strategy, um, that will give you insight to, are they a tub tank or tower? And then how do I approach them? If I know that they're a tower, get, you know, if they talk about getting their grandkids involved and I'm holding on to it and we're letting it grow, then you start thinking about planned gifts and requests. And, you know, can you, will you include us as, you know, in, in your, you know, final plans for the death? Um, if they're the tub donor and they say, oh, yeah, I just I, I put money in every time and I, I move it out every year. And you, you say, can I can I get in on that annual kind of cycle? And, and if they're the tank, then those are great major gift prospects. Right. Yeah, I sold this property or we, we liquidated this asset and we moved a bunch in and we're still trying to figure out what to do. Um, hey, let me give you a proposal. And, and, and we think that we have some things in our organization that you know, this is a good time for you to, to make a big difference. And so um, I, I think just probing your donors, understanding um, their approach to using their donor advice fund will give you great insights on how you could customize a solicitation. And I second what Dan says. And for me, one of the most important questions I ever asked was the timing of when do you make your gifts out of your DAF? Because um, I had a donor who told me his family gets together every year for Thanksgiving and they decide over the Thanksgiving dinner table, where they're making their gifts to. So I knew I had to get my proposal to them before Thanksgiving, but not too much before Thanksgiving. I didn't want them to forget about it, but before <laughs> Thanksgiving or it wouldn't be on the agenda. That's perfect advice. That's great advice from both of you. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your expertise and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for joining Graham Pelton's Make Mission podcast. Our mission is to elevate philanthropy so nonprofits can flourish. To learn how we do it, visit podcast.grampelton.com.